Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us on the line today from the Western Cape in South Africa is Professor Nicola Smith, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Stellenbosch. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a very big pleasure to be here. Prof. Smith, to begin with, your career has literally seen you traverse across the country from Gauteng to the Northwest and now in the Cape, where you serve as the Dean of Faculty of Law at the University of Stellenbosch. Please, can you tell us about your vision for the faculty? Yes, sure. I actually start with my second term as Dean here at Stellenbosch Faculty of Law on 1 August. And uh, my vision for the second term has really been shaped by our experience of the last two years, which has been very difficult for everyone, including for those of us in the higher education sector. And um, I therefore want to consolidate our position after COVID-19, principally to augment and maintain the wellness of our staff and our students, but also to prioritize several areas that we've identified in our strategic plan, which was interrupted by the pandemic, and to contribute to Stellenbosch University to realize its vision 2040 and its strategy. And uh, this involves providing our students with a transformative student experience and our staff with cutting-edge support uh, in order for them to excel in what they do, which is mainly teaching and research and social impact endeavours. Um, you know, our faculty aim to attract top students and diverse students, and we want to spearhead legal education, and we want to build capacity, and we want to impact legal education and leave a deep social impact in our communities. So um, that's quite a mouthful, but... <laughs> You know, uh, it's it's a varied uh, portfolio that we have as a law faculty. So um, as a dean, I would say my vision would definitely focus on supporting our researchers, our staff and our students to um, make the most of the opportunities that they have to excel at what they do. When you talk about a transformative student experience, bringing into mind the whole fact that we've come through this lockdown, completely transformed world with two years of COVID. What does that translate to? Yes, so, you know, we are faced with a new cohort of students every year. And at the same time, that's wonderful, but it's also challenging. Um, We're faced with an increasingly global world. So it means that our students have to be prepared to go into a a world where new careers are uh, uh, visible that we actually don't even know might exist when they graduate. So we have to prepare them for the unknown. And we also have to help young people to transform themselves, to learn uh, their capabilities, to know what they are capable of, to push their boundaries, um, to fulfill their own best uh, potential. So a transformative student experience has many facets. And uh, we, we hope that we can help them unlock some of those, at least, during the short time that we have them here on our campus. What would you say are some of the greatest challenges in the role? Well, the role of a dean is actually a very wide-ranging one. 
I often say that um, being a dean means that you must be an academic leader, um, but you must also be an administrator as well as a manager. So as a dean, you are also responsible for finances, operational aspects, and then there is therefore never enough time in the week. <laughs> uh, I am a good planner and I consider myself to be quite organized, but still there always remains things on my to-do list, on my action list. So I would say because it is such a varied role, um, that is a big challenge. You need to be um, quite an organized person, time efficient, a, a good planner. I would also add to that you have to be quite a strategic thinker. And then secondly, I would say that people and relationships make up a very big deal, um, a great part of my responsibilities. So luckily, I do like people. <laughs> and uh, when you deal with people, of course, you can never expect one day to be the same than the next. So always expect the unexpected. Um, so plans always change. Um, but that also keeps everything interesting. And I would say that's perhaps one of the most challenging aspects of the job, but also one of the most rewarding, because there's always a great variety to my day, which I find very stimulating and exciting. You wear multiple hats in this role, so juggling components of strategic elements as well as managing the operational day-to-day uh, -day components. Can you tell us about some of your leadership styles and I know that I read somewhere that you describe one of your styles as a leadership constellation. Can you unpack that for us as well? Yes. So, as you know, constellation is a Latin word, and it more or less means set with stars. So, before the compass was invented, people used the stars to navigate, you know, sailing across the ocean, that you would use the stars to reach their destination. And I once read an article that explained that amongst professionals, you as the leader, you can actually only be the first among equals. And therefore, you should always ensure that all your colleagues have the opportunities to develop their leadership skills so that eventually your organization mirrors a constellation full of stars which shines brightly leading in their own fields of expertise and helping each other navigate both tricky calm and stormy waters. And I think in the knowledge industry, like we work, um, knowledge workers are all very driven people, intelligent people. They are all leaders in their fields, in their respective fields. And um, therefore, I see myself not as a leader that walks ahead, but somebody who walks with the team and I know that at some point in time, you know, I will be walking with the next leader. Um, and I think my task is to make sure that there are such a constellation um, of leaders that's ready to put their, their hand when the time comes. Yeah, so that's sort of my philosophy. That's such a wonderful description and one that I haven't heard of previously, but it taps into all of these elements of being first among equals, so that it's not someone who's leading ahead, but it's leading together and having this inclusive approach and being able to build people up so that they can all shine brightly. Yes, and I must say, you know, in our sector, I think 
it is it, it's definitely different from a corporate organization. In corporates, I think the CEO plays a much different role as a leader and as a manager. But certainly in the higher education sector, that approach, in my mind, would not be a very effective way to lead. So f- for me, this approach has been very successful. And I think it is something that um, has value intrinsically in our field. So Leadership Constellation forms your philosophy. What are some of the leadership strategies that you found to be effective? Yes, so um, I would say if I have to summarize it, I perhaps would say firstly that it's very important to be a good listener and to listen with an open mind. I say this up front because quite often uh, people think that as a woman you should be very firm and you know you, sh- you should not show any weakness but I feel very strongly that having an open mind and being a good listener does not mean that you are indecisive or that you cannot make a decision when necessary it actually means that you are listening to what people can offer what they bring to the table and that improves the decision that you make at the end of the day, you're still the decision maker, but you have listened and you have gained insights from other people's experience and different views. And then closely connected to that, I think it's also a very important strategy to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> it is very valuable to ask questions. So I um, always tell the story that I, I once read that Einstein apparently said that if he had an hour to solve a problem, he would spend the first 55 minutes deciding which questions to ask. Because if he asked the right questions, then he would only need five minutes to solve the problem. And I'm a big believer of that philosophy and strategy. (laughs) So I think it's very important to ask questions because then you gain uh, insights in how to solve problems. You gather data. And um, yes, once again, it's, it's a way of working through information to reach an answer. And then thirdly, the collaboration, um, recognizing diverse inputs. You need some people who are the rainmakers, who have lots of ideas. You need people who can persevere, who can finish off. Uh, you need people who have the creativity and the humor to keep everyone going when the going is tough. So a collaborative strategy of including a diverse team, uh, team members, um, that brings out the best of the whole team. Thanks for sharing some of your leadership strategies and also giving the perspective, I would say, from a gender point of view on um, being a woman in leadership and being able to utilize your characteristics to enrich and lead from a place of authenticity in yourself, as opposed to trying to apply another lens uh, to the way that you inherently operate. You were listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity. And today we're talking to Professor Nicola Smith, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Stellenbosch. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. The sad thing is that across the spectrum, so whether it is in the academic space or in the business environment, there are a handful of women occupying leadership positions. 
How do you think we can build leadership capability and mentor our future women into leaders? Yeah, um, Amalaya, I think actually that you've identified a very important tool already in your question, namely mentorship. I think it's crucial that there's, that there's good mentorship. And of course, this requires trust and support. I've been very lucky to have had um, good mentors, both male and female in my career. And then secondly, I think it's very important for society to make it possible for women to show their capabilities, because I think we all have inherent capabilities, but we're not always given the space and the time to showcase these capabilities. And here, you know, it's things as basic as having a supportive partner who perhaps share household chores or being in a workplace that has an organizational culture that's inclusive and that doesn't stereotype or discriminate against women with family responsibilities. So it's, it, it's really all to do with a mindset change, um, that it isn't women's responsibility to make this happen. Um, it is a societal responsibility to make sure that there's more equal opportunities and equal um, outcomes for, for all in society, because that will be to the benefit of all. And I feel very strongly about that. Uh, th this is not a um, philanthropic or, you know, a nice gesture that, that society bestow upon women. Um, uh, society is losing out when women cannot fully participate in the labor market and cannot fully uh, participate in decision-making at the highest levels, etc. But we are part of society. So in effect, it is up to us in our respective roles to change those perceptions and ensure that these opportunities are brought to fruition for women. Yes. Yes. And I think this is, this is what makes it so difficult. Um, because, yes, you are correct, you know, in our workplace, for example, in my faculty, 60% uh, of our academics are women. And the question is, why are we making the slower progress than we would like to see? And I think it really is a, a question that, that bothers me quite a bit. And it's, it's a question that hasn't been answered satisfactorily for many decades. Women bear an uneven share of unpaid and unrecognized caring and other societal work. And, and, and please note that I call it work, even if it's unpaid. <laughs> it is work. It's, it's time consuming um, and it drops, it, it, it drops women from time that could be spent on professional work and duties, which makes it very difficult for them to progress in their careers at the same pace as their male peers. And until this burden is shared more equally between uh, women and men, uh, women will remain at a disadvantage. So what is the solution? Of course, it, it should be, for example, to say, well, is there sufficient regulatory frameworks in place to make it possible for men and women to share that burden? One simple example, you know, it wasn't until too long ago that we didn't have paternity leave in South Africa. We only had maternity leave. So even in those few instances where partners did want to share the burden equally, they, they couldn't. 
because the regulatory framework didn't make it possible to do it. But that's just one example. In many other instances, um, there's a choice to be made. And unfortunately, the choice usually is not the one that falls to an equal uh, sharing of that burden. Although things have changed tremendously, you know, from the days when my mother and mother-in-law entered the workplace, things have changed. And we have to give recognition for that as well. The glass ceiling have, have moved, even though it hasn't disappeared. But there's still too few women in the high decision-making positions. And, and therefore, I believe that it's very important for us, if we want to make a shift, we must make certain that there where the decisions are made, there are representation. So, for example, you could make a shift if you ensure that recruitment panels, at least, are representative. So, you know... Then you ensure that all applicants are afforded an equal opportunity to have their strengths and their particular talents recognized. Because we do tend to see people through our own lenses. And if you have, for example, a panel that all looks the same and thinks the same, then chances are that the applicants will be considered exactly the same. So I do believe that there are things that we could get in place, but it's taken far too long. Uh, to do these fairly basic things. And, and, and then you have to ask, all right, is it political will? Um, is, is, is it the fact that women doesn't have enough political pressure? Is the lobbying not there? Uh, those of us who have already reached some influence, influential positions, are we not utilizing our voices enough? Um, and we have to do that introspection on a continuous basis as well. You've shared some really interesting insights that are also practical. They are reflective of our reality. And the other take that I, I have on this is that it seems to be that we get generational shifts where we can look back on the previous generation and acknowledge the advances. But we see less that happens within a generation to drive change. Mm -hmm. You were listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to Professor Nicholas Smith, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Stellenbosch. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. Smith, staying for a moment on the educational side of things, one of the things that I appreciate about research is that there's this constant drive for new discovery and innovations that emanate from research. I know that reading up on your research interests, it includes aspects of transfer of undertakings and associated issues such as extending protection to vulnerable workers, including people working in the informal economy, dismissal law or job security, decent work and selected social protection issues. As Dean of the Faculty, I assume there must be a number of research projects that are ongoing. Can you share with us some of the significant collaborations or research projects that your teams have undertaken that really delve into solving real-world challenges? Yes, certainly. So as a labour lawyer, the areas that you've described all deal with fair treatment of workers and the systematic role that law can play and must play in unequal relationships to ensure that there's more fairness and equal treatment. 
And in our faculty, um, we have several um, areas of research where we actually do make a difference in ordinary people's lives. We have four research chairs at the Stellenbosch University Faculty of Law. We have a research chair in human rights. We have one in social justice, one in intellectual property law, and then also one in constitutional property law. And in these areas, uh, we have made huge strides uh, through uh, research projects, commentaries on bills in, uh, in parliament, from expropriation to copyright bills, to uh, debt and uh, credit uh, consumer protection. And then of course, we also have other areas where there's not necessarily research chairs, but where we have uh, uh, clusters of people working, for example, public procurement, an area which is very important in our country, having regard of the problems that we are experiencing with integrity and ethical procurement and the drive to um, stamp out corruption. And then we have in our faculty, we also have a law clinic, um, the issue law clinic that provides legal services to indigent people in our communities. I think in the last year, we provided services to up to 2,000 people. And um, they also embark on strategic impact litigation. And uh, they take matters up to uh, the highest court, the constitutional court. Um, and all of these matters deal with issues that can really have a widespread impact on ordinary South Africans, uh, whether it be on the impact of uh, credit consumers or family law matters or eviction matters. Um, so we really feel passionate about social impact and our research. Uh, one of the most important things for us is that it must be relevant and that it must make a change for the better uh, for the whole of society. Listening to some of those elements that you spoke about, it really demonstrates how integrated the law is in day-to-day -day life. So from consumables to land protection to other social issues, it really is um, all encompassing. This is something that we always say also to, to fresh or young new law students. The law is such an exciting field. Even if you choose not to practice as a legal practitioner, there are many, many places where you can utilize a law degree to really lead and be a thought leader and to make a change in society. Um, the law is a wonderful um, discipline because it makes you think in a critical way and to reflect on what can be done um, to solve real life problems. Mm. Um, so yeah, we really are passionate about what we are doing. We recently did a show with uh, Judge Marissa Nodia Udendal, and she was talking about some of the changes which had come in place, setting as, as a precedence in law in 2022, uh, impact on Muslim marriages for women, the impact on child maintenance courts. So it really demonstrates that as a discipline, it's always, always evolving. Yes, that is true. And I must say for the academics, it keeps them on their toes. Um, they always have to research and make sure that they remain at the forefront of legal developments. And for our law students, it means lots and lots of reading and time spent in the library to prepare for their assessments. Um, but that is part of the law. You have to be a lifelong learner. Um, that's for sure.
You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and today we're talking to Professor Nicholas Smith, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Stellenbosch. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. Smith, as a program, our focus is about celebrating women's achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, gender-based violence, and socioeconomic class division. As a woman who has really succeeded in her career, please can you tell us about some of the obstacles that you encountered and overcame? Yes, I, I mean, it, it has been a long, a long journey from starting out as a, as a junior lecturer, traveling uh, the academic road. Uh, academia is a very traditional uh, field, um, even more so in law faculties, I would venture to say. Uh, so it has not been an easy road, I'll be quite honest about it. Um, and it may sound strange, but, but I would start off by saying that you need to be brave. And by this, I mean that you need to believe in yourself. For example, I was the first woman dean at Northwest University, and I'm only the second woman dean at Stellenbosch University. But facts such as those should not deter you from putting up your hand and saying that I am here and I believe that I'm ready to take up this role. So you should be confident in your own abilities. You should not wait for somebody else to say that you are ready. You will know when you are ready. You have to be brave enough to believe in yourself. Then I also think that something that I found quite difficult, especially when I was a little bit younger, is that many of us women don't speak as loud and as often as many of our male peers. And I'm, I'm being very I'm honest with you now, <laughs> or at least not in the workplace or the boardroom. I mean... Many people will say we speak a lot more than our male counterparts, but in the workplace, sometimes we don't speak up. But this is not really an obstacle. I've come to realize after quite some time and some soul searching, um, as I've found that it's actually much more important to communicate well. So when you do communicate, being transparent and being very clear and concise in what you communicate so the important thing I would say is that it doesn't really matter how loud you are. It's more important that when you communicate that you are positive and that you inspire and empower the people around you. That's far more important. And then people listen much more closely, even though you might be whispering. So you need not be a, a very outgoing or a loud person to be a leader. That's actually what I'm trying to say. And then something that I actually also found a little bit difficult because I am a friendly person or I like to believe I am a friendly person is that some people tend to think that because you are a woman that you won't have very strict or very high expectations of the people around you, that you won't expect a very high standard of performance and hold people to those standards and expect a good e a work ethic. And I, I don't agree with that view. 
I think that you can have very high standards and expectations. You can expect a good work ethic from your team while still showing empathy and compassion. There's many roads to Rome, I like to say, and what may be appropriate for one person at a particular point in time might not be possible for another person. And I think a particular strength that I have realized is that I don't mind being flexible about how you achieve a goal. So how you achieve it, that we can always discuss. But the goal itself, that is not up for discussion. And, and that I have found that um, men is not always so flexible about. <laughs> or my, my male counterparts, perhaps not. So I've, I think over time I have realized that many of the things that we perceive as obstacles, actually, if you have a positive mindset and a growth mindset, you will realize that many of those things can actually be strengths. But then you have to be true to yourself, as you also said earlier, and don't try to be somebody else. Play to your own strengths and use it optimally. That aspect of mindset is so important. You can look at something through one lens and see yourself as a victim. You can look at something through a different lens, the same thing, and see yourself as a victor. So it's the attitude and approach that you apply to this. Given that you've had all of your experiences, you are where you are, and I often think that hindsight gives 2020 vision. Uh, it's very easy to look in the rear mirror. If you had an opportunity to redo anything in your life to date, what would you change and how would you go about it? Yes, so I don't think I would have changed much. I think I would have followed my own advice more closely and tried to maintain a better work-life balance. As women, we've sometimes tried to do much more because we want to show and prove that we that we are able to do everything perfectly. <laughs> um, but then again, I love my work, so it's not a hardship for me. Um, but I do believe that perhaps I would have started earlier with being open and making myself available as a mentor. I think um, making it clear to fellow to fellow colleagues that I am available, come and talk to me. Um, now I do it more often, but I would have started do doing that much earlier on. As we go into the last part of the conversation, I wanted to ask you a question that I ask all my guests who've achieved tremendous success in their respective fields. And that is about what you consider to be some of the key drivers to your success. Yes, I think um, probably my upbringing. I think all of us uh, take that with us wherever we go. I grew up in a middle-income home. Um, I think today it would be described as the missing middle home. Um, neither of my parents had the opportunity to study further, but both of them fully believed in the necessity of education, and they supported my sister and I to have the opportunity to, to do so. My father worked for Ford Motor Company, and he pleaded with his employer to grant me a bursary. That's how I ended up at university in first year. Without that bursary, I never would have had the opportunity. And thereafter, 
with uh, merit bursaries and countless part-time jobs from waitressing to shops and uh, clothing stores and bookstores, I managed to finance my studies. But that instilled in me very early on, I would say, a very good work ethic, but also an appreciation for opportunities and the importance of making the best of every opportunity that comes your way. And then, of course, also the responsibility to give back because you've had those opportunities and you know that anybody else who could potentially be in your position and only need that little, that little help, that little first step to go upon a journey. Um, so I would say that, that my background, the role that my parents played, um, that had a, a tremendous impact on my way of thinking about life. And, and how I approach everything that I do, a positive mindset, um, believing that what you put in is what you get out, and uh, believing that it's much nicer to share than to receive. Please would you tell us about some of the female role models in your life. Well, I would definitely have to start with my mother, <laughs> of course. I think most of us uh, will start there. Um, as I just said, she taught me the value of a great work ethic and a positive attitude and that you determine, determine your own self-worth. Uh, but I've also had some very strong female uh, colleagues and line managers that I've learned a lot from, um, especially uh, when I was dean. Previously, I had two female line managers, which was quite interesting from the um, set environment, science, um, engineering and tech environment, which was also a, a, a good thing for me coming from the humanities and social sciences. So it really saddens me when I sometimes read about female bosses who do not uh, support fellow female women colleagues. Uh, and I'm lucky that I've not encountered women, a woman colleague, at least in my direct circle of influence and work up to now that haven't been supportive and that I haven't been able to collaborate with well. And then, of course, on the political front, um, there have been uh, Madeleine Albright, um, Hillary Clinton. There's been quite a few um, figures that I thought, you know, given the chance, perhaps they could have made a huge difference in world politics. <laughs> and uh, I think a few life, uh, life lessons that we could also take away from their failures, not only their successes. Michelle Obama. Uh, quite a few uh, of those women that I really admire. That's a lovely mix of both near, uh, relatable directly and also further afield. Mm -hmm. As we close out our conversation today, please, can you use this platform to share a few words of inspiration or motivation to girls and women in the continent who are listening to us? Yes, I would love to do that. Um, I feel really passionate about young girls and women in Africa. I think women is what makes change happen. Quite often uh, we underestimate the role that women play in the, in the small circles, at home, at school, in our communities. And um, I love the quote, um, 
I love all quotes, good quotes, but there's one particular one of Maya Angelou that um, said that each time a woman stands up for herself, she stands up for all women. So I'm a big believer that you have to stand up for yourself. And your journey begins with education. You have to feel passionate about it and you have to give it your all. And you have to persevere. And I think one of the most important things that I always tell our students when they arrive here on campus is please don't compare yourself with anyone else. You are special, you are unique. Fulfill your own potential. And if you do your best and you are always yourself, you will succeed. That is your strength, your uniqueness is who you are and believe in yourself and you will do wonderful things. Thanks for a fantastic message. You've given me um, a good dose of, of energy and motivation to move ahead. It's been great having you on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I've been privileged to have this conversation with you. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to Professor Nicola Smith, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Stellenbosch.